Disney's Episode 19, The Rocky Horror Picture Show. to Disney-ish, a podcast for Disney fans. I am your host, Christopher, and once again, we are doing something a little bit different this week, or I guess this episode. Uh, the last episode was The Shape of Water, and this is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Neither one of these movies is traditionally a Disney movie, but it is spooky season, and both of them were originally released by Fox, so that means that they fall under that umbrella. Uh, and... I do want to say happy belated Halloween. By the time you're listening to this, it'll be early November, but we are recording this on Halloween on October 31st. So happy Halloween. Uh, even though, like I said, it won't be Halloween by the time you listen to this, but that's all right. Uh, so yeah, we're talking about the Rocky Horror Picture Show today. And, uh, you know, just as a quick like intro, I guess, is to kind of like talk about my connection with this movie. Um, I first saw this movie when I was probably, I want to say I was like 12 years old and it was probably too young for me to see it. Uh, and that's one thing that I do want to say right from the get go here is that normally I do try to keep this podcast pretty family friendly because it's a Disney podcast. And so some of you might be listening with your little ones and normally I try to make that possible, but this is not a movie that is really suitable for little ones, so the conversation here might get a little bit risque, which means if you normally do listen with little kids, this might not be the right episode for that. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, like I said, I was about 12 years old when I saw this. Um, gotta love my older sister, Ellie. Terrible influence on me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, renting this from a blockbuster and watching it with me. And uh, she knew exactly what we were getting into because she had seen it before. I think she had even been to interactive events before. Uh, so she knew exactly what she was doing. And uh, yeah, I I didn't love it the first time. I was kind of bored out of my mind because one of the things about this movie that I think takes some adjustment is that it's really just like an hour and a half of nonsense. There, <laughs> there really isn't much of a story here. <laughs> There's not much of a plot. Uh, and so I don't think that I was ready for that at 12 years old. And, uh, when I got older, I want to say I was like 18. Cause I think I was a freshman in college when I revisited it. So I was like 18. I watched it again. And that was about the time in my life when I was finally starting to become comfortable with my sexuality and, uh, had a very different experience with it my second time. And really, really enjoyed it. You know, I loved the campiness. I loved Frankenfurter. Uh, you know, I, I just loved how over the top and ridiculous it was. And I tend to love nonsense. And it's one of the reasons why Alice in Wonderland is one of my favorite Disney movies because and one of my favorite books because it's just nonsense. And I tend to appreciate that. So uh, I really did love it a lot more. And now it's become like a staple. You know, it's like, I love, love, love this movie, and I've also seen a stage production of it 
two or three years ago. Uh, I think it was two Halloweens ago. So Halloween 2021, I saw a live production of it. And I wasn't expecting much because it was kind of just at this really small like community theater uh, that I went to see it with with my friend Michelle. And I had very low expectations because I was like, well, you know, this is just like a local community thing. It's not going to be great, probably. But I was blown away. It was like Broadway level performances. The singing was excellent. It was so well put together and it was just incredible. And I might even go as far as to say that I liked it better than the movie. It was really, really good. So uh, that was just a wonderful experience. And that was my first experience, uh, you know, at an interactive event because we'll talk about this um, throughout this episode. But the thing about the Rocky Horror Picture Show is that it has such a large cult following that oftentimes at screenings of it, whether they're showing the movie or they're doing a stage production of it, uh, it's interactive. So the crowd kind of interacts with the movie, throws things uh, at certain points, uh, you know, and it's a very interactive experience. And I've experienced that sort of thing twice. The first time was at that uh, live production of it. And then the second time was actually very recently. It was like two weeks ago. Uh, and it was the movie. So we'll talk a little bit about those experiences as well, because Rick is with me again today. Um, and he, too, has been to um, at least one interactive event. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. But, yeah, I think I said in the last episode, uh, The Shape of Water, that it was going to be just me covering the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But surprise, Rick is back. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've been friends with you for what has it been now? Like four or five years, something like that. It's been a while. Yeah. And I had no idea that you liked this movie. So it's, it's kind of exciting that, you know, uh, there's still opportunities to learn things about each other. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so after we, uh, after we finished recording our shape of water episode, he was like, Hey, did you want to host for a, a co-host for the Rocky horror picture show as well? And I was like, really? I didn't even think to ask because I didn't know you <laughs> liked it. <laughs> so, yeah, Rick is back, which is amazing because this is definitely the type of movie that I think uh, is going to be a lot more fun to talk about with someone rather than by myself. So <laughs> uh, I'm really, really excited. Um, I can't wait to hear like what you have to say about it. And, uh, you know, because it's just one of those movies that it's going to be fun to talk about. I don't think that I've yeah. ever really had a long conversation with anybody about this movie so uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. So, yeah, I'm happy to have you back, Rick. And, uh, yeah, what's your uh, what's your relationship with this movie? Um, well, I'm very excited to join you for this. I mean, between The Nightmare Before Christmas and The Shape of Water and now Rocky Horror Picture Show, I'm super in the Halloween spirit. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to you. So thank, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Of course. Um, and, and, and like you, I was much younger when I saw Rocky Horror Picture Show for the first time, although I was in my 20s and not <laughs> not as young as you were. Um, and I and I did go into it uh, for my first viewing going, what is this to now? This is great. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yep. And uh, a few years ago, I watched the movie with a couple of people because one of them was uh, dared to dress up as Rocky for Halloween. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. So nothing but the gold shorts. And <laughs> yeah. And so he was like, well... I guess I should watch this movie then if I'm going to be the character. 
So we watched it and I don't know, it was maybe like halfway through the movie. It was the, you know, the wonderful uh, scene of Frankenfurter seducing each one of them. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he was like, what the hell are we even watching? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a rite of passage. I think you have to have that moment. (laughs) Every, well, I say every as if I've been to a lot. I've been to two. Um, But both interactive events that I've been to, uh, you know, whenever they do the like, you know, who who here tonight is a virgin, you know, meaning who hasn't been to an interactive event before. Um, And uh, there are always people who raise their hands and then you can overhear like you can hear people in the crowd saying like, "Ooh, you're in for something tonight. That's for sure. You know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm such an introvert. Like when I first started seeing what was going on, I was like why did my friends bring me to this? I only want to watch a movie. I don't want to be part of the show. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I had so much fun at the, especially, I mean, I had fun at both of them, but the, the live show especially was just really, really great because you're interacting, not just with a screen, but with actual people, you know? So yeah. Um, I would love to do something like that again, but, uh, yeah. So, we're going to talk about that and so much more in this episode. But first, uh, you know, some some background information about this movie. Uh, it was originally released on August 14th, 1975 in the United Kingdom. And then September 26th, 1975 in the United States. Written by Richard O'Brien and Jim Sharman and directed by Jim Sharman. And then we've got a pretty amazing cast here. Uh, Tim Curry as Dr. Frankenfurter. Susan Sarandon as Janet Weiss, Barry Bostwick as Brad Majors, Richard O'Brien as Riff Raff, and yes, we did just say that name because he is one of the creators of it, Uh, Patricia Quinn as Magenta, Little Nell as Columbia, Jonathan Adams as Dr. Everett Scott, Peter Hinwood as Rocky Horror, Meat Loaf as Eddie, Charles Gray as The Criminologist, and Hilary Farr as Betty Monroe. And one thing that I find funny about this cast is that some of these names are like really, really big, big names now, like Tim Curry, Susan Sarandon, uh, Meatloaf, obviously. But I don't know if they were in 1975. I feel like back in 75, the average person probably didn't know who Tim Curry or Susan Sarandon were, you know, like this was before their their heyday. (laughs) So um, it's kind of funny that, you know, now. They're huge people, but they I don't think they were then. Uh, yeah. And then music by Richard Hartley and songs by Richard O'Brien. And brief film synopsis, uh, whatever uh, plot there is here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a newly engaged couple have a breakdown in an isolated area and must seek shelter at the bizarre residence of Dr. Frankenfurter. And as always, before we actually start talking about this movie, we want to give some trivia. There's a lot of really, really, because of how iconic this movie is and the cult classic that has, you know, developed or the cult status that has developed because of it. It is now a cult classic. Uh, You know, there's tons and tons and tons of trivia out there about this movie. So many people have like devoted so much of their lives to doing research and and all sorts of stuff and you know so there's a lot of it so obviously we're not including all of it uh but as always we will have a link to the imdb page if you want to check out more because there's quite a bit but uh to get started here uh the time warp 
which, uh, you know, that's probably the song that the movie is best known for. But uh, the Time Warp was originally written for the stage version to fill space. The original production was only 40 minutes long. That is, uh, I did not know that. So I wonder what else was added in because the Time Warp wouldn't have been enough to bring it to, what is the movie? Like an hour and a half, an hour and 40 minutes, something like that. It's not super long. Yeah. Um, During Sweet Transvestite, after the line, you look like you're both pretty groovy, Frank bites his lower lip, and some have speculated that that uh, moment was the inspiration for the Biting Lips uh, movie poster image. Vincent Price was offered the role of the criminologist, but turned it down due to scheduling conflicts. He was interested in the role as he had seen the West End musical and loved it. Mick Jagger wanted to play Dr. Frankenfurter in the movie version. According to Meatloaf, apparently Elvis actually expressed some interest in the role. Yeah, that would have been amazing. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, Meatloaf is great as Eddie, but I can totally imagine in my mind Elvis in that role. And uh, yeah, and Vincent Price is a criminologist. That's so funny because like uh, when we talked about The Nightmare Before Christmas, we talked about how Vincent Price was originally offered the role of Sandy Claus and wasn't able to end up doing it because he got too sick. So, uh, yeah. yeah, that's two movies now that, you know, maybe in a parallel universe somewhere, Vincent Price <laughs> is in. <laughs> Think of all the things we missed out on being even more awesome without Vincent. I know. I know. Yeah. Uh, when this movie first opened, it had a very traditional release with afternoon and early evening screenings, and it bombed. Uh, Meatloaf said that he attended an opening the week of the performance with the writer and director, and the theater was empty except for them. Uh, Midnight screenings became popular in the mid-70s, and word of mouth began to spread that the midnight audience might enjoy this movie. It began showing at midnight in a few cities and became so popular that it had been shown continuously in movie theaters since 1975. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I get the sense that, you know, a lot of movie theaters were probably taking this without really realizing what they were taking. (laughs) Um, And yeah, and I think it kind of became sort of like a, a, like we were talking about this before we started recording, um, you know, how like in some cities there are like grindhouse theaters, you know, that show B-list and C-list movies that are sometimes like just really over the top with gore and, um, you know, that's kind of just like considered a grindhouse theater. And I get the sense that, not that this movie is gory, but it's definitely um, it's definitely very much like an art house film that's not for everybody, you know. So I get the sense that it was probably that type of theater that was probably showing it, you know. Um, when Barry Bostwick pounds his fist on the table during the dinner scene, he accidentally pounded on the hand of Susan Sarandon. The reaction from Sarandon is prominent and real. She got her revenge by accidentally stepping on Bostwick's foot with her spike heel (laughs) during the floor show scene. His reaction is also visible. That's funny. (laughs) Gotta love that improv. Yeah. Um, Dr. Everett V. Scott crashes through the wall for his entrance because the set builders forgot to add an extra door in the lab set. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny, and it works so perfectly well. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's just a happy accident. Uh, Kismet. The set had no heat and no bathrooms. This one, I actually, I didn't know about the no bathrooms, but I knew about the no heat. Uh, I knew about this before uh, doing research for this podcast. Uh, When Susan Sarandon told the studio heads, they told her she was complaining too much. She caught pneumonia after filming the pool scene in her skimpy outfit. 
According to Richard O'Brien, she was, quote, shaking with fever and should have been under medical supervision, but refused to stop working. Susan Sarandon sometimes dislikes talking about this movie because she hates the fact that none of the cast members got royalties from the DVD sales. Oh, wow. wow. That's, that's, yeah. Oh, that really is disappointing. And, and we wonder why there's writer and actor Exactly. Strikes. I was just thinking that. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Yeah. I mean, I just found out not too long ago, I want to say it was maybe two or three weeks ago from this video that I watched on YouTube that, you know, I always assumed that like movie stars, like all movie stars, you know, are like ridiculously rich. And obviously some of them are, but this video that I watched said that on average, a film actor makes less than 10 K a year. And I was like, what? That is insane. That is poverty. You know, like no wonder people are, (laughs) you know, like striking. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is really unfortunate. That's very sad to hear. Uh, The green surgical gown that Dr. Frankenfurter wears has a pink triangle over his heart. The triangle was used by the Nazis in concentration camps to denote that the wearer was a gay man, but it is pointing downward. The pink triangle pointing upward is often used as a symbol of gay pride. Yep. I mean, I knew about the pink triangle. I, I, uh, you know, and like during the Nazi uh, invasion and everything, like I knew about that, but for some reason I never made that connection, you know, with the pink triangle being on Frankenfurter's gown. Yeah. Another reason it probably wouldn't have done well in theaters in the 70s. Exactly. (laughs) In mainstream theaters. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely way ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Yeah. In the original stage production in London, Dr. Everett V. Scott and Eddie were played by the same actor, which has become the custom in many subsequent productions. Meatloaf was disappointed to learn he wouldn't be playing Dr. Everett V. Scott, saying, quote, I said you're making a huge mistake, and I still think they did, even though the actor was fine. The way it was in the play was that Eddie and Dr. Scott really looked alike, so you knew it was his nephew, and I was a really good Dr. Scott. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was a miss. I think he was right. Yeah, yeah. I I would have liked to have seen him play both roles. According to Richard O'Brien, the skeleton in the clock was a real-life skeleton belonging to the woman who commissioned the clock. In 2002... The clock was auctioned off and sold for 35,000 pounds, which I think is like $42,000 or something like that. Yeah. And uh, I'm curious, too, like uh, what that would be today accounting for inflation. But they had the same thing in the 2016 musical, but I don't know if it was the exact same clock. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's interesting, though. I didn't know that. It kind of reminds me of I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Poltergeist, but um. Mm -hmm. There's a scene in that movie uh, where the mother is like in like muddy water, like muddy ground in the backyard of the house. And there are like a bunch of skeletons around her. And those were Uh all real human skeletons. Oh, God. Yeah. So it kind of reminds (laughs) me of that. (laughs) Actors are underpaid. I'm sorry. Yeah, they are. They absolutely are. (laughs) The makeup department created a plug that fit over Peter Hinwood's belly button to hide it from view during filming. Since Rocky Horror was created by Dr. Frankenfurter completely from scratch, that means he didn't have an umbilical cord and therefore shouldn't have a belly button. Yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> and I don't think I noticed that. I don't think I did either. Uh, the movie was originally intended to be shown in black and white until Dr. Frankenfurter's entrance, and then only his lips would be in color. 
the rest would still be in black and white. At the end of Sweet Transvestite, it would go immediately to color, and it was supposed to stay in color up until the superhero song. 20th Century Fox included a similar cut as an Easter egg on the 25th anniversary DVD of this movie, but it was slightly different from what was specified in the screenplay. It was black and white up until Riff Raff opens the door, revealing the Transylvanians, at which point it cut immediately to the color film. So, so what they're saying is the lips only in color does not exist. Is that what they're saying? I think so. That's okay. my understanding of that. Yeah. Uh, most of the actors and actresses weren't told about the prop. This is another one that I actually did know already. Most of the actors and actresses weren't told about the prop corpse of Eddie under the dining room tablecloth. When it was revealed during filming, their looks of horror are genuine. The only three who knew were Tim Curry, Richard O'Brien, and Meatloaf, who had to model the corpse. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Um, I love it when directors do that, when they, I mean, obviously, to an extent, like, yeah, I'm not talking about, like, apparently, I don't know if you've, I know you're not big into horror, so you probably haven't, but um, The Shining with uh, Shelley Duvall, um, apparently Stanley Kubrick, like, just psychologically tortured her, just put her through uh. hell. Because he wanted her, like, I mean, that was the state that the character was in. So he wanted it to be genuine. And it's like, okay, that's method directing a little bit too far, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The final number, Superheroes, is mostly on UK exclusive prints of this movie, though it has shown up on some American prints. Yeah, I think... It, it is in mine. Yes, I was just about to say, same here. And the version that I saw in theaters a couple weeks ago had it included. So... I think that at this point, it's pretty much just, like, in most cuts of the movie, but originally that was the case. Yeah. Because, yeah, I own it on Blu-ray, and I'm pretty sure... In fact, now that I think about it, my Blu-ray, when you, when you like, go to the main menu, it says, like, watch U.S. version or U.K. version. It lets you pick. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mine too. Yeah. So, like I said, uh, there's a whole lot more um on the imdb page so uh you know go check that out if you want to get even more trivia about this movie there's tons of it uh but yeah let's uh let's actually talk about this movie uh really really <laughs> excited about this uh you ready here we go yeah. here we go all right <laughs> so uh i do really love the opening of this movie i always have um it's the thing that i remembered most from my first watch it stuck with me like I just for years always had that image in my mind of, you know, the lips singing the opening song. And that probably now that I think about it is probably something else that was added. That probably wasn't in the original 40 minute production. Uh, especially since like, to the best of my knowledge, the stage production was just called the Rocky horror show. And then the title was changed to the Rocky horror picture show when it became a movie, which makes perfect sense. Um, but yeah, this is definitely what I remember most from my first watch. And interestingly, it's Richard O'Brien who plays Riff Raff singing this opening song, but it's Patricia Quinn's lips that we're seeing. Um, she plays <laughs> Columbia. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember where I learned that, but <laughs> it's just one of those things that I've known for a long time and don't remember where I learned it from. But um, yeah, I love this opening song. Uh, I always sing along to it every time and that's another thing that's a lot of fun about the interactive events is that some of the songs the crowd will sing along to. Uh, and this is one of them that they did at the theatrical event that I went to a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but yeah, so I, I just really love this opening song. 
science fiction double feature is great. It's great. I love it. Um, but I can't help but wonder that people might be lost in the audience if they really didn't have some good B-movie knowledge. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? for sure. Um, I mean, there are even a few references in it that I don't think I get, but um, I know I have seen Forbidden Planet. That's one that's mentioned. Uh, there are a whole bunch of them that's mentioned, and some of them I've seen, some of them I haven't. Uh, but yeah, definitely, it's a, it's a very much like a love letter to, uh, you know, B-list science fiction and horror movies. Um, one thing that I really honed in on on this time, like watching it a couple weeks ago at the theater, uh, that I don't think I really noticed before is that in the opening credits, uh, you know, it gives a list of the cast and it doesn't just say their character names. It also says like this very brief like description of them. And I found some of them to be really funny. So I did write down all of them. Uh, Dr. Frankenfurter, a scientist. Janet Weiss, a heroine. Brad Majors, a hero. Riff Raff, a handyman. Magenta, a domestic. Columbia, or actually, yeah, Patricia Quinn plays Magenta. I think I said Columbia earlier. Um, yeah. But Columbia, a groupie. Dr. Everett Scott, a rival scientist. Rocky Horror, a creation. <laughs> Eddie, ex-delivery boy. And the criminologist, an expert. So some of these are really funny, like, uh, you know, a domestic, uh, <laughs> a groupie. <laughs> I love these descriptions. And like I said, I can't believe I... I probably did notice it before, but just didn't really pay it any mind, you know, because... It was probably like, oh, it's the opening credits. I'm not really reading this, you know, <laughs> but um, the older I've gotten, the more I kind of do pay attention to credits because I get so like I do care now about, oh, who directed it? Who wrote it? Who right. did this and who did that? But when I was younger, I didn't really care about that. So uh, those descriptions leave me with with many questions. I I'm just thinking, like, what kind of situation would lead to a groupies? Was, wasn't Eddie considered an aspiring rock star and not just a delivery boy? Right. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I'm assuming that Eddie and Frankenfurter were once an item. That's kind of the, the vibe that the movie gives. So what exactly yeah. was he delivering? <laughs> yeah. Well, and isn't there, I feel like this is trivia I've heard elsewhere, when he said, I thought you were the candy man, um... I think they mean like a drug delivery. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah. He's just a little brought down because <laughs> when you knocked, he thought you were the candy man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So one thing that I do really hate about the interactive events, though, is that I'm kind of a, in fact, I looked this up recently and there is an actual real word for it. It's like globophobia or something like that i don't remember the exact word it starts with a g but i kind of have like a phobia of balloons popping and when you go to an interactive event uh one of the props that you know people either bring with them or that's given to you both of the events that i went to you were given a kit when you came in oh wow yeah uh and one of them is a balloon and, you know, you're supposed to blow the balloon up. And then in the opening song, uh, the line that goes, when worlds collide, everybody pops their balloons. And that's the one thing about interactive events that I don't like. <laughs> I, 
for some reason, I just do not like balloons popping. It's just like this sudden, loud, you know, really abrupt noise. And it just really like, I kind of have to like, like when I saw the stage production with my friend a few years ago, um, I was kind of like, and I'm not exaggerating. I was like plugging my ears and cowering under the table. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I do not like balloons popping. So that's the only thing I don't like about the interactive events. But once I get past that, you know, I'm off to the races. So, <laughs> um, so one thing that, you know, I pretty much have always noticed this every time I watch it. I don't know that I did my first time cause I was 12, but, um, you know, like most times that I've seen this movie, uh, you know, I've kind of always honed in on this, but like this time, especially I was like kind of looking for clues because I was kind of like looking at it from a more analytical perspective because I knew I was going to be covering it on the podcast. But, um, I do think that Brad is probably gay. Um, and I say that for a couple of reasons. One is that I'm definitely not the only one because the first interactive event that I went to the stage production, um, so jumping a little bit ahead here, but, uh, you know, the infamous scene when Frankenfurter seduces both of them, you know, each of them individually, uh, Brad and, and, uh, Janet, um, when he tries to seduce Brad, Brad says, I would never, the first interactive event that I went to, someone in the crowd shouted, that's not what your college roommate says. <laughs> <laughs> So clearly I'm not the only one who picks up on this, but I feel like there are also just little tiny clues peppered throughout. Like for example, uh, early in the movie, you know, Brad and Janet are at a wedding and there are little clues dropped that Brad and Janet have been together for a long while, but they've never been intimate. Now, granted, part of that could be because it was a different time and you're not supposed to have sex until you get married, but I don't think that was the only reason because I also got the vibe that like Brad was hesitant to even ask her to marry him, you know? And, uh, it seemed like Janet really wanted to be intimate, but he was the one holding off on it, which that's usually, you know, I don't mean to gender stereotype, but that's usually not the way it works. It's usually the other way around, you know, especially in media, especially in fiction. Uh, so I just get the vibe that he was the one, you know, refusing to put out <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, but he did not refuse for Frankenfurter. So, you know, uh, and I think one of the themes of this movie too is embracing who you really are. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, uh, this whole experience does for them. They kind of, uh, let go of cultural norms and just experience who they are, you know, and, uh, that's definitely one of the themes of the movie. And I think it's one of the things that this experience did for Brad was it allowed him to come to terms with that part of himself. So yeah, I just was kind of like just picking up on these little clues throughout the movie. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, you, you've made a great point. And, and now that you say it, I can't unthink it. <laughs> and, and in fact, in the 2016 movie, uh, after the Brad and Ralph characters do a fist bump, Brad smells his own hand after it touches Ralph. <laughs> and then they also include in the 2016, they include a, a very Broadway-ish emo song, and it's a solo for Brad. And I guess that does show up on the soundtrack uh, to the Rocky Horror Picture Show movie, but it's not in the actual film. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I didn't even know that. <laughs> wow, I'll have to go listen to that song because I don't think I've heard that. 
Yeah, it's good. Uh, so there are a number of references throughout the movie to American Gothic. Um, the I can't remember who painted it, but the painting of like the elderly couple with the, um, holding the what is it like a sow like a um yeah yeah. Uh, but there are a number of references to it. There's the painting in the mansion, and also you see, um, I think, is it, I'm trying to remember who it is. One of them I know is Richard O'Brien. I can't remember who the other one is, but you see a couple of people standing outside the church in the wedding scene near the beginning, you know, in the same pose. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, definitely a number of references to that throughout the movie. I'm not sure what to make of that. I don't know what it means, but... <laughs> <laughs> it um, kind of reminds me of the wizard of oz where some of the characters in dorothy's family you see later represented in her more colorful colorful journey so maybe that's just a way to have foreshadowing yeah yeah could be definitely um i, I think we talked about this during the shape of water uh podcast uh too well i'm sorry shape of water episode two um but rocky horror shows a lot of examples of harmful conservative norms like betty is a wonderful cook i mean is that all she's she and other brides are good for, you know, <laughs> domestic service. And um, Janet comments when Brad gives her an engagement ring, well, it's it's bigger than Betty Monroe had. It's like, why is there so much competition among brides? Right. Yep. And and it's, to me, I think the wedding tradition seemed like the real horror movie to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I mean, that's kind of the point that I was making earlier is that I think that's one of the themes of the movie is breaking away from, you know, cultural norms and being yourself right. you know um yeah there's definitely like a theme throughout the movie of like embracing you know hedonism and pleasure and you know what makes you happy and violating stereotypical cultural conservative norms and stuff like that so absolutely yeah i think that's a great observation to make uh and that's the thing too is i think that you know especially for a 1975 movie and this probably you know has a lot to do with as we were saying earlier why the movie kind of tanked. I don't think that the movie's view on that is that, you know, like, yeah, this is like, how do I word this? I think it's being critical of that. You know what I mean? Like it's not presenting that in a way where it's like, yeah, this is, this is the normal, you know, this is the norm. Like I think it is making fun of, you know, conservative norms, you know, I think the thing of the movie was ahead of its time in that respect. And, um, and, audiences were just not ready yet and that probably helped make it tank because they just made something you know it made them uncomfortable like they weren't ready to think about that yet and that's why i do wish more people would be willing to push boundaries because i think that that's kind of what made this so big eventually you know was that yeah. you had enough people like word of mouth going around you know like Oh, you got to see this movie. It is wacky. It is so out there. You know, it is ridiculous. And, you know, <laughs> and the word of mouth goes around and people get curious and they want to see it for themselves. And it ends up becoming a cult classic, you know. Um, I mean, did it tank originally? Yeah. But also becoming really big and having a cult following, you know, because uh, it did show that I think, you know, there are. There are a lot of people in the world, even though, you know, back in the 1970s, there were still very conservative norms in place. I mean, there still are to an extent, but even more so then, um, you know, clearly there were also a lot of people. I mean, you think back to like the 1960s and 70s and like we think, yeah, things were more conservative back then. And yeah, but you also had like, you know, the 
hippie free love culture, you know? Um, and to me, I kind of feel like that would have been the crowd that would have loved a movie like this. This is like a twisted version of um, Cabaret in a way, you know, and, and that came out in 72. So you and that and that did well. I think it did well. Um, and so you'd kind of think that maybe Rocky Horror would have a similar success. But, you know, people, people just weren't ready. Right. Right. <laughs> it was definitely in a lot of ways ahead of its time. Uh, so the thing about the Rocky Horror Picture Show is that it's not strictly a horror movie, but it is something that tends to be celebrated around Halloween time because it does have spooky elements. And I think it is in some ways kind of poking fun at old horror movies. And it's a parody of things like Frankenstein and, you know, uh, just I mean, you think of like the classic films that are mentioned in the opening song, you know, it's it, it is in a lot of ways like a parody of the classic monster movie and horror movie. And it does embrace some of the stereotypes um, so, for example, or not stereotypes, but tropes. Um, but, for example, the whole reason that they come across this castle is that their car breaks down in the middle of nowhere, and it's a cold, rainy night. And there are so many horror movies that start off this way. You know, the car breaks down in the middle of nowhere. They have nowhere to go. So they knock on somebody's door and, you know, things go down from there. Uh, and that's what happens here, you know? And so that is kind of like horror, like that scene, uh, the car breakdown. Um, I think that is just an example of the movie, you know, embracing some of the, now granted this was 1975. So I don't know how much of these stereotypes really, or tropes really existed yet, but, um, that scene really does seem like a horror trope to me. I, I thought it was interesting that when they're in the car, um, the radio is, is playing news about President Nixon's reg resignation on the news. And some people say that's kind of a, that's kind of the marking of the end of the innocence for America as a whole. And so at the same time, we're seeing Brad and Janet's innocent fade away a little bit too. And um, I had looked online um, for some of the trivia and they mentioned the continuity error that Nixon's net resignation was in August of 74 and Rocky Horror Picture Show takes place in November. Interesting. Yeah, so possible error there. Yeah, yeah writing error. Not that, it not that it really matters. <laughs> so this is kind of what I was talking about earlier with like this whole evening, this whole experience kind of changing them arguably for the better. Like it helps them break away from cultural norms and stereotypes and conservative expectations and whatnot. Uh, because the criminologist is narrating throughout the movie. He says, it seemed that fortune had smiled upon Brad and Janet. And this is kind of ironic because, like, obviously, it's it's kind of a crazy, horrific night in a lot of ways. So it's like, did fortune really smile upon them? <laughs> you know, uh, but also, I mean, yeah, I, I think <laughs> that this experience probably did. I mean, you know, the superhero song even kind of touches upon this a little bit. Um, you know, this experience, I think, kind of did free them in some ways. You know, like, I think that. They probably do feel like Janet, for example, is clearly very uh, sexually starved and Brad is very clearly <laughs> like repressing something. And I think that this experience probably helped them break free from that. You know, like Janet's probably going to allow herself to be, you know, a little bit more uh, loose now and 
Brad might, you know, be a little bit more uh, willing to, uh, you know, embrace himself now. So I, I think that maybe this night in the long run probably was fortunate for them. <laughs> and I think that that might even be intentional, like in the dialogue there is that it's meant to be ironic, yeah. you know? Um, I like the irony of the song uh, where it says uh, there's a light <laughs> over at the Frankenstein place because actually dark times are ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's definitely going to be a bit of a night for them. But uh, like I said, it's it's arguably, you know, light as well. They they this is definitely an experience that I think frees them in a lot of ways. So uh, it's yeah, it, it's an interesting movie because it's like this is I don't know that I would want to. I don't know. I can't I can't decide. It's like what I what I want to experience this like <laughs> i don't know <laughs> honestly it seems like it would be kind of a fun night but at the same time uh, i mean somebody does get brutally murdered and <laughs> so i don't know <laughs> yeah that is the one little sticking point and then there's eddie <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh but by far i mean nothing else in this movie even compares i pretty much cheer every time uh <laughs> By far, my favorite scene in this movie is Frankenfurter's entrance. Uh, you know, Brad and Janet come to this castle looking for a phone. And this was another thing that, like, both times that I saw an interactive uh, version of this, uh, you know, every time a phone is mentioned or Brad asks to talk on the phone, asks for a phone, uh, you know, people in the crowd shout, like, Castles don't have phones, asshole. <laughs> uh, and another thing, too, is that, like, you know, and I think that it's meant to be subversive. Like, it's not meant to be misogynist language. It's meant to be like, yeah, embrace it, you know, be yourself, you know. But um, every time, like, Janet introduces herself or Brad introduces her, like, every time her name is said, everybody in the crowd goes, slut <laughs> and then when brad's name is mentioned everyone goes asshole um but you know the thing about like calling janet a slut though is that you know again i feel like the audience of this movie like the the cult following that this movie has kind of gained over the years tends to be more uh liberal people you know yeah so, like, calling Janet a slut, I don't think that's meant to be misogynistic. I think that it's subversive. You know, like, yeah, you like to have sex. Get it, girl. You know? Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, <laughs> um, But, yeah, that's one, of the, that's one of the interactive things that happened at both of the events that I went to. But I just love his scene. It's so iconic. And, oh, Tim Curry is just so wonderful. Um, truly, truly. Yeah. He's so great in this, in this performance. The time warp is so iconic, but it's also kind of ridiculous, especially when the criminologist holds up the dance step uh, tutorial cards. <laughs> it's like That's another thing that happens at the interactive events is that people in the crowd get up and do the time warp. They actually do the dance. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I mean, something in the Rocky Horror Picture Show being ridiculous. No way. Like, nah, no way. <laughs> And every time they say transsexual, Transylvania, I'm like, where, where are the vampires? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I do tend to think vampires when I think Transylvania, but uh, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe uh Riffraff is a vampire. I mean, we don't really know what some of these beings are or if they're supernatural beings or what. I mean, we know they're aliens, but Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But uh good point. Um but one of the many reasons that I love this movie is like I've said already, I love nonsense and it's just so funny to me. Like I laugh so hard every time I watch this. Cause it's like, it's so funny to me imagining myself in their situation. You know, it's like my cars broke down. I'm here because I just need to use a phone and then I'll be out of your way. You know, I just need to use a phone to call somebody, tell them where we are so we can get out of here. But there's just all of this ridiculous nonsense happening. Like <laughs> people dancing and doing this time warp dance and this Frankenfurter, you know, I just like one of my favorite lines of the song or of the movie, although it is one of my favorite lines of um, sweet transvestite as well, which is my favorite song from the movie uh, is, you know, Brad basically tries to tell him that, you know, our car broke down. Like we need a phone. That's all we need is, you know, just to call somebody and then we'll be out of your hair. And <laughs> uh, Frankenfurter sings like, yeah. So he says, well, you got caught with a flat. Well, how about that? Well, babies, don't you panic. By the light of the night, it'll all seem all right. I'll get you a satanic mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> I love this because it's like, you know, and like when you watch the scene where Brad is like, you know, trying to plead his case, like, you know, we'll get out of your hair. We just need we just need a phone. Give us a phone and we'll be out of your hair. Like the look on uh, Frankenfurter's face is like, you know, he's like not even paying attention, you know? Yeah. And <laughs> that's, that's just what I love about this is it's like, you know, that's another horror movie trope is, uh, you know, the villain is like, it has you trapped here now, you know, and, and you're not going anywhere. And uh, I love the, the, the lyrics here too, because I think that there's meant to be like, uh, you know, innuendo here, obviously, because I mean, he clearly has no actual intention of getting them a car mechanic, right? No, <laughs> that's not what he means by satanic mechanic. <laughs> I think what he means by "I'll get you a satanic mechanic" is, uh, you know, Satanism and what it actually is by today's standards, like not doing, uh, you know, evil spells and casting curses on people and sacrificing animals and stuff like that. Like most modern day Satanists, that's not actually what they do. Um, a lot of them don't even actually believe in the existence of Satan. They just believe in what he represents, which is rebelling against the norm and forging your own path and being your own person and embracing pleasure. You know, like that's what most of them actually believe in. And so like you look at, satanism from that perspective and yeah this is 100 percent a satanic movie you know <laughs> like <laughs> um and i think what he's saying there is like don't worry like you know i'm gonna fix you up i'm gonna i'm gonna fix you up tonight don't worry but it's not the way you think <laughs> I'm i am gonna fix you <laughs> um I, I kind of you said you know other horror movie tropes maybe uh the flat was purposeful like they have nails or something out there and that's how they get people to you know have bodies to see if he can build another human being. Yeah. Especially since like, uh, the criminologist, doesn't he like show us photos of the wedding and isn't like Frankenfurter there? 
I'm pretty sure that there's a photo of the wedding that the criminologist shows us and Tim Curry is there at the wedding. So it just makes me wonder. And I know Riff Raff is, or at least uh, Richard O'Brien is playing a character because I think that Richard O'Brien, like I said earlier, is one of the characters standing in front of the doorway of the chapel with the American Gothic pose. So it makes you wonder, like, yeah, were these people targeted? Like, were do they go around and, and look for people who probably need to be freed up a little bit? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're living very uh, constrained. Especially since, like, I mean, Frankenfurter basically just starts immediately flirting with both of them yeah you know and because he is kind of like what both of them need you know like he he can free janet up sexually which i think she needs and he can give brad what i think he needs which is a man (laughs) (laughs) so uh yeah it just it wouldn't surprise me if they were if that was all deliberate yeah they they were they were targeted um you know who doesn't love the uh anticipation line oh yeah just the best yes yes i i just i just love this whole song (laughs) what do they do at the interactive i can't remember um so when he says you know i see you shiver with antissa the whole crowd goes say it say it say it (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh but yeah like a perfect example of him uh flirting with brad is he says such a perfect specimen of manhood (laughs) (laughs) And I just love how like over the top and campy he is like he's such a Disney villain, you know, like obviously not literally, although technically he is now. But um, yeah, he was a princess. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We talked in our Nightmare Before Christmas episode about how uh, Finkelstein or Finkelstein, however it's supposed to be said, uh, you know, is obviously inspired by Dr. Frankenstein and here is another character who clearly is like his name is Dr. Frankenfurter. Um, he has Rocky horror, a creation like the monster. So, you know, this is definitely another example of a character, you know, inspired by, and also a parody of Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. And when we see Riff Raff and Magenta torment Rocky with fire, it also reminds me of Frankenstein. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Yep. Um, (laughs) There's another uh, reference to conservative norms when Janet asks Magenta, is Frank your husband? And it's like, can't we just let go of these male and female binary roles? I mean, <laughs> does, does there have to be a husband in the picture? And then <laughs> another thing I thought was kind of funny, um, Brad and Janet have to take the elevator to Frank's lab, you know, after that sort of rainbow tank scene. Um, how come all the parties are already there? <laughs> They've already gone to the lab. I know. Brad and Janet have to take the elevator. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and in one of the other commentaries uh, I was reading about, uh, someone said, Rocky, alive for five minutes and already hates being alive. Very, very relatable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I love that too. I've always noticed that, how like, you know, yeah, they, they take the elevator up to the lab, but then everybody's already there. It's like, well, how did they get yeah. there? <laughs> yeah. What, what was the point of keeping meatloaf while Eddie in the freezer? <laughs> And did I just make a pun there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. Frankenfurter kills Eddie with a pickaxe. Now it's a real horror movie, right? Suddenly it's all horror. Yeah. Now we get our, our kill, our big kill of the movie. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a little bit graphic. You know, you see some blood on uh, Frankenfurter after he does it. but um, And I think there's like a trail of blood coming out of the, yeah. the ice room. But um, 
It doesn't actually show the murder, though. So um, to those of you who maybe are listening to this because you're like, you know, I've always been kind of curious about this movie, but I don't really know, you know, if gore is not something that you like, uh, there's not a lot of it in this movie. It's it's really not very graphic. Um, I think later in the movie, when you see Eddie's body underneath the table, that's a little bit more graphic. Um, that's fairly gory, but even then it's not gory by, you know, the standards of what you would probably see in a horror film today. So, you know, if gore isn't really your thing, I think you can still handle this movie. Do we think, you know, I'm back, back and forth. Sometimes I think that they are eating Eddie at dinner. And sometimes I think he's just in the table as a way to say, I brought Eddie to dinner. I can't, I'm not really sure. I think they're meant to imply he's being eaten. Yeah. I, I, I think that, I think Frankenfurter was, was definitely serving Eddie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And there's, there's more uh, societal norms where Janet diminishes herself when she says, I don't really like my man with too many muscles. (laughs) Well, I love his reaction to that too. It's like, well, I didn't make him for you. (laughs) (laughs) And then I think it's pretty close around the same time. I thought it was kind of cool and, and, and even more progressive than I realized, you know, they had a, like a fake wedding. Well, not a fake wedding, almost a, a wedding scene for Rocky and Frankenfurter, which that would have been unheard of back then. Yes. Um, I don't remember for sure. I think it's at both scenes, but I think at the interactive events, um, like the wedding scene at the beginning with the chapel and then now this quote wedding scene People in the crowd, uh, in the interactive events, um, throw rice around. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but yeah, that's that you're absolutely right. I mean, there's just, there's so much about this that is so ahead of its time that must've really, really, really made some people really angry (laughs) when this first came out. Yeah. And then we already, you know, briefly touched upon this scene. Um, it's probably the most well i don't know there are a lot of infamous scenes in this movie but i i think this might be the biggest one uh because like i said earlier this is even the scene that uh you know someone that i knew that was watching the movie with me a few years ago was like what are we even watching right now you know (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah there's a scene where um brad and janet try to go to bed for the night um and of course you know sleeping in separate rooms uh and frankenfurter kind of like seduces each one of them by pretending to be the other one. So like he'll get in bed with Janet disguised as Brad. Uh, and then he gets in bed with Brad disguised as Janet, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously seducing them. But then like, and the, the interesting thing about these scenes is that you can't really see the specifics of what's going on because it's like a shadowy silhouette. Um, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, he he seduces each one of them and, uh, you know, has sex with each one of them. And uh, it's it's just this scene. It's so funny every time because of their reactions when they find out that it's not really Brad and it's not really Janet, you know. <laughs> uh, and I also just think to myself, like, how i mean either it was really really dark in that room or he's just like like a makeup extraordinary like how could he have fooled them you know like (laughs) especially since like he sounded exactly like them too 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoy those seduction scenes so much. So funny. Um, I, I love how they use a curtain to hint at what's happening without actually showing it. Um, that helps make the scenes not have to be technically perfect. And also it makes it easier to believe how they're being duped. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And, and I love the morality concert concept being shown where, hey, people will probably lose their filters if, if given into urges if no one's watching. Yeah. And then you said that line, I think already too, you know, like uh, Janet says, what have you done with Brad? And Frank says, uh, well, nothing. Do you think I should? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, my delivery is probably terrible. Listeners no, no, like, that's fine. In the world? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I, I don't think I did bring up that line yet, but that okay. is so funny. Yeah. I just, I love the dialogue here. I love their reactions, you know, um, it's just, it's, it's perfect. And, you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, like when I was younger, you know, these scenes always used to, I mean, I found them funny. I laughed, but I kind of like was a little sad because I was, you know, I was like, well, these two people love each other and they're cheating on each other. That's not right. And, you know, I felt bad for them. And, you know, I've, I've just always been such a hopeless romantic, but, you know, again, like I was saying earlier, I think that like what we're supposed to take away from this movie is that these two people are together because society says that they should be, you know, I mean, there's even that pressure at the beginning for them to get married, you know, right. um, they're probably not actually right for each other. Janet probably needs somebody who's very sexual and, and, you know, is, is willing to, uh, you know, and, and Brad probably needs to not be with a woman. So, <laughs> you know, it, 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 they're probably not right for each other. And, and I think that Frankenfurter, you know, even though he is kind of the villain of the movie, um, very likely helped them realize that. So I don't see it like in the really sad, heartbroken way that I used to. I highly doubt that. I mean, I could be wrong, but I highly doubt that Jad and Brannett stayed together after this night. You know, did you just say Jad and Brannett? Jad and Brannett. <laughs> I think you did. did I say Chad and Brannett? <laughs> but we know what you meant. It's endearing. Chad and Brannett. <laughs> I didn't even notice, so I'm so glad you brought it up. <laughs> I probably would have, like, during the editing, I would have heard myself and just had a laughing spell. Like, <laughs> man, Chad and Brannett. Um, yeah, yeah, they, they, they probably did not stay together after this night, you know, um, or did and they? probably rightfully so. I mean, yeah, they could have, they might've, but, um, you know, I don't think they're right for each other. I think it's, it's, it's interesting how they become so comfortable in the castle that they are often walking around in it by the unattended and, and Janet just happens to catch the video monitor of Brad and Frank and Frederick in bed together. Yeah, and I, I think it's really funny, too, how, uh, you know, she sees that on the monitor and she's like, you know, how could you? And it's like, you did it, too. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and I also love the roll call scene. I love when, um, like, they all realize, you know, like, Brad realizes that Janet has now had sex with Rocky as well. And uh, Dr. Everett is there because he's arrived at this point, Dr. Everett Scott. And um, that's another interactive thing is the, the, the line, great Scott, you know, people throw <laughs> toilet paper. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, like 
Frankenfurter is there, obviously, and Dr. Everett Scott is there, and Janet is there, and Rocky is there, and Brad is there. Like, they're all there, basically. And they've all now realized, you know, uh, Janet has had sex with Rocky, and Brad has realized that. And Brad and Janet have realized that Dr. Everett Scott is there, who ironically is who they were on their way to see when this happened. <laughs> uh, and so they all kind of start realizing things and piecing things together. And I love how, like, you know, Janet is like, Brad! And Brad is like, Janet! You know, and uh, Brad, I'm probably getting this wrong because it goes on for so long. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> Brad is like, Dr. Scott! Or maybe it's Janet that says that, you know, and... Uh, I think Frankenfurter is like, you know, I don't remember who he calls out, but Rocky, does he call out Rocky? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And it just, it goes on for so long and it's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, it kind of reminds me a little bit. I don't know if you've ever seen, um, Shrek, but there's a scene in that movie when there's like a similar sort of fight happening and everybody's calling out each other's names and then randomly out of nowhere, Eddie Murphy's donkey character is like, donkey! <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they stole that from this. Probably. Or borrowed it. Borrowed yeah. It. Uh, but I also do really enjoy the dinner scene. Um, you know, Frank is really funny in this scene. I love how, like, uh, you know, because obviously by this point, as you mentioned, uh, Frankenfurter has killed Eddie. Um, presumably because... That's the thing. I'm I'm not really sure. That's it's one it's another example of like, okay, what is even happening right now? I'm having trouble following the plot. But I think because uh Eddie is singing um, you know, this this like rock and roll song, and I get the impression at least that Frankenfurter doesn't like the way that Rocky is looking at him and he gets jealous. I think that's it. But uh yeah, he kills Eddie, and there's also like this um I think it's Columbia that says something later, um, you know, about like, you know, I loved you, Frank, and Eddie loved you. And all you do is just throw people away and use them and then throw them away when you're done with them. And uh, so there's definitely a heavy implication that Eddie and Frank used to be lovers. Uh, and I think that Frank kills him because he doesn't like the way Rocky's looking at him and gets jealous. But uh, yeah, he kills Eddie and then has this dinner after uh, Dr. Everett Scott shows up. And I love how, like, you know, because we find out that Dr. Everett Scott, as we mentioned already, is Eddie's uncle. And uh, so anytime Eddie is brought up and it seems like somebody might be about to spill what happened to him, you know, Frank has that electric knife that he's cutting the meat with, <laughs> and he holds that electric knife up and gives them that look, like, you know, like, don't you dare... Just wait and see what happens if you do, you know. Uh, but I also just love Frank's outfit in this scene. Um, you know, he kind of has changed outfits at this point. He's wearing like this black uh, kind of sheer shirt. And I think it has like a like a floral design on it or something. But I just really love that outfit. Um, but then, yeah, like I said earlier, this is definitely the goriest that the movie gets. Um all of a sudden, you know, uh, the tablecloth is yanked off the table and we find out that Eddie's body is underneath the table. And as we mentioned already, uh, that was um, staged in such a way so that most people, you know, their reactions would be legitimate because they didn't know that that was going to happen. 
uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I love the dinner scene too. <laughs> um, and while it's implied that Eddie is being served as the main course, <laughs> it sure looks like a Thanksgiving turkey to me. Yes, it definitely does look like a turkey. <laughs> um, and I do love the lyrics of a song, Eddie, that they're singing around the table where they say, uh, when Eddie said he didn't like his teddy, you know he was a no-good kid. That almost makes me think that you, you could look at that open-ended killing as, was it a mercy killing? Because Eddie was so bad that Frank Furter had to kill him. Or, I don't know, he, he took part of his brain to build Rocky, thinking that might cure Eddie, like maybe a lobotomy. <laughs> but, it, but it didn't quite take. Yeah, <laughs> He was just as bad as he was before. So Frank's like, well, you know what? Let's just end this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he even does say, uh, after he does it, that it was a mercy killing. Oh, it does? Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, and that's the thing. Like, that's part of the reason why it's so hard to, like, recount the plot of this movie is that there's a lot that's implied but never explicitly stated. Like, you kind of have to piece a lot of things together yourself. It's almost like this series of just, like, disconnected events rather than, like, a linear plot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh. And I think part of that could be, because I didn't even know, like before doing this podcast episode, I didn't know that the original show was 40 minutes long and then added on to. That might yeah. be why it seems a little bit discombobulated and, you know, all over the place and random and kind of plotless is that, you know, they just were adding on all this extra stuff to make it, you know, uh, longer. And I mean, I think in the long run, I'm like kind of glad that that did happen because like I said, it it is now like this kind of nonsensical spectacle. And I think that that's partly what people love it for, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's kind of funny yet tacky that Frankenfurter's wearing Eddie's leather jacket. It's like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't say that I've ever killed an ex-boyfriend before, but if I did, I don't think that I would wear his jacket. <laughs> uh, but another thing about this movie that I really appreciated on this watch is that, um, you know, Susan Sarandon, I mean, we know that she's a very skilled, gifted actress. I think she's even won awards, um, you know, but her acting in this movie. Now, part of it could be because this is one of her earliest roles. Like I said, I doubt the average person probably even knew who she was when this movie came out. I think she was probably still like either like a B-list um, actor or even... This might have been her first role. I'm not sure. Uh, but, you know, her acting in this movie is so over the top and ridiculous. <laughs> but I also love it. I think it just works so well for the movie. And it also, to me, like, you know, I don't think that it is that she wasn't skilled yet. To me, I think that it's absolutely deliberate that she understood the assignment. She knew exactly what kind of movie this was and just completely hammed it up. I mean, can you imagine being handed that script? And, I know. And reading it and going, <laughs> what, what do you want me to do? <laughs> um, I love the Planet Schmanet, uh, Janet Wise Up, Janet Wise song. Um, and it sounds so much like Elvis. And, and now that we learn, know about Elvis possibly playing Eddie from the trivia, wouldn't that have been amazing? For sure. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and yeah, that definitely, that song definitely kind of has an Elvis vibe to it. And that's another thing about the movie, too, is that it definitely has a. Uh, variety of music to offer like a lot of the songs sound very different from each other like it's definitely not repetitive you know right and i i love the variety i love how like 
no two songs really sound alike. Um, so yeah. Agreed. Um, but okay. So this is another thing that I think probably turned, I would imagine anyway, probably turned a lot of people off back in the seventies. Um, you definitely get this vibe. I don't think it's ever explicitly stated, but it's definitely implied that Magenta and Riff Raff might be sexual partners. Like, I kind of get that vibe from them. Uh, but we also find out that they're apparently siblings, their brother and sister. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm sure that went over really well. Yeah, I'm not sure if they're siblings, should they be kissing like they do? <laughs> Yeah, and they seem to they seem to have this very intimate, like borderline sexual relationship. So, um, in fact, one of the interactive things that happened, uh, I can't remember if it happened at the live show because I don't remember if the actors did this, but it definitely happened at the movie showing where, like, every time they, uh, they like put their arms up and rub their arms together, you know what I'm talking about? Um, yes. Yeah. Everybody in the crowd went elbow sex elbow sex <laughs> your interactive movie sounded like it was more fun than the one i went to <laughs> well i mean how long ago was it that you went to that one it was a long long time ago. yeah so i mean it, I, I would imagine that over time like more and more parts have been added you know what i mean yeah yeah um did you notice that the chase music scene sounds like what's this from the nightmare before christmas because i thought of you when i was rewatching. I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds just like something from The Nightmare Before Christmas. No, I'll have to go back and uh, now that you say that, I'll have to go back and watch that scene, like rewatch that scene because I don't think I yeah. noticed that. Timestamp is there for your convenience. <laughs> Definitely very appreciated. I'll have to pull out my Blu-ray later. Yeah. <laughs> um, Another funny thing that happened at the recent interactive event that I went to, and this I don't remember having happened at the live show. I don't think it did. But at the movie, uh, yeah, the, the criminologist is is narrating and he says, you know, uh, and just a few hours after announcing their engagement, Brad and Janet had both tasted and there's a pause. And then he says, forbidden fruit. And everybody in the crowd during that pause <laughs> said, penis. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. I mean, I just, I've been to two now. And like I said, I, I plan on going to more. I've just got to, I've just got to soldier through the balloon popping, but, uh, yeah, yeah. There's so much Maybe fun. they've changed it, uh, because you know, that sounds too much like a gunshot and that these days people are very sensitive to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love the, uh, Frankenfurter line to Dr. To Dr. Scott. I hope you're adaptable, Dr. Scott. I know Brad is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's just so shameless, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then, when they use that powerful magnet, the triple contact electromagnet, no less, <laughs> to pull Dr. Scott throughout the house, uh, that was another kind of a uh, ridiculous moment. <laughs> you know, and I just, I feel like the electromagnet laser, or whatever it is, the levers that they pull to, uh, you know, uh, not only that, but then also, like, you know, to turn people into stone statues. I feel like this was definitely just, like, poking fun at sci-fi movies, you know? Yeah. Like, old sci-fi movies definitely was, it was parodying that. Um, But, you know, I'll talk a little bit more about this when we get to our rating, um, our ratings. But, you know, part of my 
problem with this movie. In fact, the first time I watched it when I was 12, this was kind of where I started to feel especially bored and just wanted the movie to be over. <laughs> and I feel differently about it now, but um, yeah. I do think that like from that point on, like when the floor show starts, uh, the plot kind of does just like the little plot that there is anyway, kind of just like comes to a screeching halt, you know, and there is literally nothing happening, just nonsense <laughs> and singing, you know, um, the movie definitely does slow down a little bit from here on forth, you know, and uh, uh, I don't mind it now, but you know, the pacing of this movie is definitely very inconsistent. Uh, but I also think that's 100% deliberate. So I don't necessarily mean it as a negative criticism. Although, like I said, uh, being 12 and not having the attention span that I do now, um, <laughs> I lost a lot of patience with it then. Uh, but it's one of those things where it's like, cause I think we watched that. It must've just been like a Tim Curry weekend because I think that, this was back when, you know, blockbusters were still around and yeah. where my sister lived at the time. I mean, I just have such fond, wonderful childhood memories of spending weekends with her and us going to Blockbuster on Friday night and renting a few movies, um, ordering pizza or Chinese and, uh, you know, watching movies. And I just have such wonderful memories of that. And there was one weekend in particular that I think we rented the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Clue. So it must have oh, been nice. just a you know wonderful Tim Curry weekend. Um and it's one of those things where I look back on it and I'm like I wish that I could have cuz I that is a very fond memory of mine is watching that movie for the first time. Now that I love the movie, like it's such a great memory, but it's like would it be an even more precious memory if I loved the movie then as much as I do now, you know? Yeah. Um but yeah, I just, I did not have the, because I don't think, I mentioned earlier how I was probably way too young to have seen this movie. And I mean that on more than one level. Like, first of all, you know, it's really not appropriate for children. <laughs> um, But also, I just don't think that it's like, in some ways it's too, like the themes are not, like a child's not going to, I mean, the, the lyrics of the songs are very poetic and metaphorical. And, uh, you know, I just feel like a child is not going to understand what's going on at all. I mean, I think it's difficult for an adult to even understand, <laughs> you know, you, you just need to, you needed to live more life so that you had a filter, a filter from which to watch it. Exactly. I think my first couple times seeing it, especially the first time I was like, Oh my gosh, this is never going to be over. Um, but I really do like the don't dream it be it song now. Like there is something about it that actually seems almost contemporary. I don't know. It feels like a college radio band, an indie band could cover that and it'd be a, a cool single to hear. Um, I was kind of wondering too, when I was watching that, that scene, the appearance of the RKO tower, is that supposed to add campiness or is that, or was like broadcast seen as a symbol of power to Frankenfurter. So that's why he, do you know what I mean? Yeah. To be honest, that's one of those things where I've just kind of like, okay, I guess there's a radio tower there now. Like I just <laughs> gonna, never really gave sit, it any thought. Going to lean into the awkward and just let it happen. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I agree. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, I, I do like the don't dream it, be it song as well. And, um, it kind of is just a wonderful summary. I mean, you could even put that 
on the poster as a tagline, you know, because it's yeah, it's kind of the truly. theme of the movie, you know. Um, like I was saying earlier, the theme of the movie is very much embrace what makes you happy, embrace what brings you pleasure, be yourself, you know. So, I yeah. uh, don't dream about being something, do it, you know. Like, <laughs> um, unfortunately, it's it's not always that easy, but uh. But uh, yeah, that's definitely the theme of the movie. So I, I appreciate the song for that reason. Um, so <laughs> one thing that always makes me kind of sad, just because, I mean, even though he's he's kind of the antagonist, he's kind of the villain. I mean, he brutally killed Eddie and uh, manipulates people and uses people. Um, you know, when Riff Raff kills him, yeah, I always get a little sad. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh yeah he uh he has this which is just another situation it's like okay i guess now we have this this uh sci-fi beamy weapon that just came out of nowhere okay um but this is also i think kind of sort of another tie-in or nod to american gothic because yeah it's sort of like a pitchfork that the person is holding in the american gothic poster painting and this kind of advanced like uh beam i forget what they call it it's like some sort of destabilizer or something it's some sort of sci-fi name for it um it does kind of have that same shape so it's kind of another tie-in to american gothic um but yeah it's revealed that uh you know riffraff and magenta want to go home frank seems to have been keeping them there i i get the sense that they've probably been there for a long time you know and yeah. they're sick of it. They want to go home. They want to go back to their own planet. Um, and they're also probably tired of, cause there's a scene earlier in the movie too. Um, when I think Rocky gets loose, um, you know, he escapes and Frankenfurter blames Riff Raff for it. And he's very cruel to him. You know, like he beats, I think he whips him, he like beats him and whips him, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's what I mean. Like, I probably shouldn't be sad that he gets killed. He was clearly an awful person. <laughs> um, but for some reason, it just always, like, especially the scene where you see him, like, face down in the water. Yeah. Anyway, Frankenfurter gets killed. And uh, it's kind of like the the closest thing we get to a resolution is Frankenfurter's uh, death. And then Riff Raff and Magenta basically telling Brad and Janet that, you know, this place is going back home in a little bit. So I would advise you get out of here. Uh, so they do, they skedaddle out of there. And just as they do, the house is revealed to basically be a spaceship. <laughs> it takes off um, into the sky, you know, uh, on its way back home to, uh, transsexual transylvania <laughs> um, there may or may not be vampires yes yep <laughs> and it's so sweet you know i mean it's sad but when rocky is carrying frank's body at the tower it, it is a callback to almost king kong and uh it's very sweet to realize oh rocky really did ultimately love frank <laughs> yes yeah i mean he just seems so destroyed and heartbroken when frank is killed i mean he just like yeah yeah absolutely uh, so, I mean, there are probably some things that, you know, I mean, there might even be some people like screaming at us right now. You forgot to talk about this. You forgot to talk about that. You forgot <laughs> to talk about, you know, because I'm sure everybody has a favorite scene in this movie that we didn't cover. Um, but you know, like I said, it's basically an hour and a half of just silly nonsense. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of just a matter of like, okay, 
what are we going to pick out here? We obviously can't talk about the entire movie, so sorry if we missed your favorite scene, but uh, <laughs> that's our discussion of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So uh, before we get into our ratings, did you have any other uh, thoughts or observations or anything that you wanted to share about the movie, Rick? No, not really. I, it sure felt like we covered all the high, high points. Yeah, I think we did. I, I think I'm pretty confident that um, there shouldn't be anybody too upset with us, but uh, uh, yeah, we definitely, I think, covered the the major points. But uh, one other thing that I actually did want to point to that I uh, forgot about is I really like the last few lines of the, uh, the movie. I, I think that you only, I could be wrong, but I think that you only get them if you see the UK version with superheroes, but um, the narrator, the criminologist says, uh, and crawling on the planet's face, some insects called the human race, lost in time, lost in space, and meaning. I really love those last few lines. Yeah. And another thing that <laughs> both times that I saw um, an interactive version of this, um, anytime the criminologist was present, everybody in the crowd would scream, where's your neck? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, okay, so ratings. Um, I don't know. It's just like, I love it, but it's just not a traditional movie. It doesn't really have a linear plot, and there's just so much nonsense. And I honestly, just every time I watch it, feel like I have a different experience with it. It's always a good one, but it's yeah. almost like every time I watch it, I watch a different movie, you know? Right. Um, so it's really hard for me to rate this, but um, I was like, okay. I'm just going to go with whatever my instinct was when I rated it on IMDb. So I looked up my rating on IMDb and I had it as a nine out of 10. So I'm just going to go with that. Um, you know, I just, I love this movie. It's definitely a Halloween staple. Um, it's a favorite for sure. I, I just, it's, it's, uh, it's so much fun. Uh, it's, it's, uh, one of the most fun movies that I've ever seen. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I don't know what more to say. It's one of those movies that's just really hard to critique and review and, uh, because it's just such, uh, such a unique experience, but yeah, I would, I would settle on a nine out of 10. Yeah. I, I struggle with the 10 point scale too. Um, in fact, I think I'm going to abstain and just say, I'm going to rate it iconic. <laughs> yeah, that definitely <laughs> works. Yep. It just doesn't, it's not something you can compare. You can't really compare it to another movie. Um, and Tim Curry is so amazing and beloved as as Frankenfurter. I mean, he's just amazing. He, yeah, he's by far my favorite part of this movie. He's just incredible. I could watch Frankenfurter's antics all day long. Absolutely. And, and so many of the musical moments are forever recorded in my brain. I mean, it's just, you know, time warp humming along to it every day. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be, um, the most popular one. I even remember, um, I used to work, um, for a brief period at a Halloween store a few years ago. And that song was just, you know, part of the playlist that the store played over and over and over <laughs> again. And so I heard it every single day. Um, yeah, the music is great. Uh, Tim Curry's acting as Frankenfurter is absolutely wonderful. He's another example of like, yeah, he understood the assignment. He knew exactly what movie he was in. Uh, and yeah, just a brilliant performance. I think that it's definitely one of those performances that I think Tim Curry's always, always going to be remembered for. I mean, he has other iconic performances as well, such as Clue, like I mentioned earlier. Um, it, you know, when he played Pennywise in 1990, uh, he's done a lot of horror. 
um, or horror-adjacent stuff. Like, Clue's not really horror, but it's definitely a Halloween-appropriate movie. Um, so, yeah, I just, I absolutely agree with that. Tim Curry is by far the best part of this movie. I mean, he alone gives the movie a nine, you know? Truly. I hope we have him for a long time. I know he's in um, not-so-great health right now, but hopefully... Yes, we'll have him for a while. I agree. Longer. Didn't he have a uh, like a cameo or something in the 2016 TV version? Yeah, he's the criminologist. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you're right. He is. He actually is. He actually is in a wheelchair as of I think 2012, maybe. Or wait, yes, because Ben Vereen. I, I'm sorry, Ben Vereen is Doctor Scott. Tim Curry is the criminologist. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right, so, uh, yeah, and, and Rick wanted to show me that he's wearing his Rocky Horror Picture Show shirt <laughs> for the podcast. Um, yes. It's really awesome. It's got, like, the, the, the lips that we were talking about a little while ago with, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the lower lip being slightly bitten. And then um, it's got, like, a black and white um, kind of checkerboard design. Very cool. Uh, so a little bit of feedback uh, did come in this week uh, for this episode, although they're talking about The Shape of Water. Um, Jeremiah says about the shape of water, one of my favorites and that score is perfect. Yeah, definitely 100% agree. Uh, we definitely, uh, talked about that. We talked pretty extensively about how much we love the score. Um, and just as a side note, I was at a record store yesterday. Um, and, and it's funny because I was just telling Rick the other night, like, um, you know, I love that movie. I just thought it was so beautiful. And I, want to own a hard copy now. Like I definitely want to get myself a hard copy. And then yesterday I was at a record store killing time before my friend's birthday party. And, um, they had a copy of the shape of water and it was in like a really thin, uh, like almost, I don't know how to explain it. The case was like very thin and like papery. It wasn't a traditional DVD case, but it looked like a, dig a digipack to me, like a CD, CD digipack. Exactly. That's pretty much what it was like. And I think that it was a copy that was sent to, um, I don't know if it was the Academy or SAG Awards or something. It was, it was like a copy that was sent for consideration for an award anyway, um, which is interesting. <laughs> I was like, for that reason alone, I mean, this is probably very, very rare. Like, not many people probably own a copy like this, you know. For that reason alone, I had to get it. But also, it was only a dollar, so I was like... I got to grab this. <laughs> so Amazing. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to have added that to my movie collection now. Um, and then also about the shape of water team, Michelle says a very satisfying film and yeah, definitely agree. I talked about that. We both did in the last episode as well about, you know, the ending and how I found it very, very satisfying. It was very different than what I was expecting and I loved it. So if you would like to reach out to the podcast, reach out to me with feedback. Uh, it can be about any Disney movie or Disney-related movie. Um, even if it's one that I've already covered, I'll still share your feedback like I did in this episode. Uh, or if it's a movie that I haven't covered yet, I will save it for when I do. And if it's one that I'm like, you know what? I absolutely hate that movie. I don't plan on ever watching it again. Sorry. It's okay. I will still include your feedback in the, the next episode. So um, feel free to reach out with your thoughts about either the podcast or a specific Disney movie or Disney in general. I don't care. I would love to hear from you. You can email disneyshpodcast at gmail.com. 
Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Podcast. You can also follow the Instagram page, which is at Podcast. And if you would like to, you can follow my personal Instagram page, which is The Lost Passenger. So before we get out of here tonight or today, uh, it's not quite night yet, actually. Um, I do want to thank you for joining uh, for this discussion, Rick. I had a lot of fun, and I think that this was so much thank more you. fun than it would have been if it was just me. Uh, so, yeah, thank you so much. Um Happy Halloween today. Yes, definitely. Happy Halloween. Uh, like I said, by the time you are listening to this, it will be uh, probably a week or so after Halloween, but it's Halloween day when we are recording this. So happy Halloween <laughs> from us in the past. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, um, would love to have you on again. I know that um, you've expressed interest in Hercules and Coco. I think there might've been a couple others as well. Um which definitely will be uh, will be covering eventually on the podcast. So would love to have you back. Love to join. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. So uh, be sure that you are subscribed to the podcast so that you never miss a new episode, because as I've talked about before, it's been a little bit sporadic. It has not been every single week because my life is just incredibly chaotic and busy between working two jobs and hosting two podcasts. Um, <laughs> it's It's a bit of a mess. So uh, as much as I wish that I had the time to get a new episode out every week, um, you know, I'm doing all the editing and producing and publishing and everything. It's a lot of work. So I just it's not it's not something that's realistically feasible. Um, so it's a little bit sporadic, but it's always on Wednesdays. Uh, so announcements will be on social media. So be sure to follow me on the resources at the resources that I just gave you. But also, if you're subscribed, then when a new episode comes out, you should be notified. So if you use Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever it is that you're using to listen to podcasts, I believe that they all have a subscribe option, which will give you the option to uh, basically be notified when a new episode drops. So that way you'll never miss a new episode. Um, next up on the podcast is going to be a countdown of my top five favorite Disney villains. And uh, it will be limited to strictly traditionally Disney. So sadly, Frankenfurter will not be making this list. <laughs> uh, he won't. <laughs> no, <laughs> it'll be traditional Disney. So no Marvel, no Star Wars, uh, no Fox. Um, just traditional Disney. Um, talking about that on the next episode. Really looking forward to that. So feel free to reach out to me with your top five favorite Disney villains, and I would be happy to share that. I'd love to talk about yours as well. But until then, this has been Disney's reminding you, don't dream it, be it. Be it.